Okay, let me tell you what I think was probably the godliest moment of this past week for me. If I had a holiness meter attached to me, this would have registered, you know, all the way up there at a 10. On Friday night, I came home early so that Shainu could go out with some of the women at Soul Care in her smaller community, and I spent the next few hours watching the kids and tidying up the house. I, I see from your smiles you're expecting something. That was it. That was the, the moment that I thought was really godly and really holy. And, and I'll tell you the other thing. And mind you, I'm saying this as a pastor. So that means I do religious, spiritual stuff all week long, right? I live in this wor weird world and weird life where praying is a part of my job. I don't have a job, but that would be a part of my job. And so I did. I spent hours literally praying with Pastor Binu on Friday for you, by name, for the mission, for our church, for the city. I spent... Hours, ministry is written into my schedule. It's this weird world where serving people is a part of my job. And so I spent hours doing counseling and premarital counseling or conversations or phone calls, as happens most weeks. I spent at least a dozen hours or more reading the scriptures, reading commentaries, and listening to multiple sermons and simply getting ready to preach to you. And so there's all kinds of things in my week that are religious and spiritual and godly, and yet I think that as I thought about the week, heaven smiled in those hours when I was tidying up the basement. Now, some context might be helpful. Earlier that morning, Shainu and I had gotten into, a, we'll call it a passionate dialogue about the, the condition of the house and how helpful I was or was not being in that whole process. And so a part of my genuine, Jesus is really Lord, I really am going to give an account for him. I really have been called to love my wife. My faith lived out kind of ways was those simple hours of tidying up the basement. Now, what's my point in telling you this? My point is simply this, that Christianity and the Christian faith is not this abstract, heady, invisible, ephemeral kind of thing. It's not a set of doctrines that you've downloaded into your brain or some principles that you've tucked away in your heart or a prayer you prayed sometime once long ago. Christianity, if it's real, is something that's lived out in real, simple, practical, concrete, tangible ways. The Christian faith, if it's real, is always a faith that will show up in real life, in real ways, in simple ways. Christianity has never been something that's separated for the professional elite, for the clergy to do in quiet studies or chapels. Christianity has always been accessible to all of us to be lived out in simple, concrete, real-life ways. Christianity will show up in the ways that we live in what we do, in how we relate to one another, in how we treat each other. That's where the stuff you have in your brain and tucked away in your heart comes to reality, when it's lived out in real life, simple ways. The Christian gospel is incredibly simple and incredibly practical, and it's going to show up in your real life with how you treat people, in what you do, in how you relate to one another. The passage that we're looking at, the two sections, chapter 5 of 1 Timothy verses 1 and 2 and chapter 6, 1 and 2, are incredibly simple and incredibly practical. And what the passages are pushing for is for the gospel that you have here and here to be lived out in reality out here. 
for the gospel to be really lived out in real life ways in how we relate to one another. And the passage has in view two groups of people that we relate with. How we relate to one another here in the church and how we relate to others out there outside the church in places like work and places of employment and so on. So that you hear the passage again, let me read a few. This is again 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2 and 6, 1 and 2. This is what it says. Nate read it for us. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. And then six, let all who are under a yoke as slaves or bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. These passages are going to push for the gospel being lived out in real life ways in how we relate to one another here in the church and how we relate to others outside in the world like at work. Okay, let's pray for a second. Ask God for help that this time would be profitable and then we'll press into these two verses together. Lord, I give you great thanks and say again, it is such an honor to have your word, to be able to read it, to know it. We're not groping in the darkness, wondering who you are, wondering what life is about. You have revealed, revealed to us all that we need to know. Help us not to neglect your great revelation. And I thank you for the high honor of speaking on your behalf. And so Holy Spirit, come use my mouth to do just that, to not give off human opinion, but to hug tightly to your word because it is able to save. And let your people now have ears and hearts and minds that are ready to receive from the Lord, that there would be no hardness that prevents your word from coming in, no deafness that would prevent your word from being heard, no blindness that would prevent it from being seen, but in simple, real-life, practical ways. Apply your word to our heart and let us live differently so that through it all may see God and his gospel. This is our prayer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the passage we're looking at starts with how we are to relate with one another in the church, and namely how if the gospel is real, not abstract, heady, invisible stuff, but real, then it's going to show up in how we really relate to one another first in the church. So you heard chapter 5, don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, older women as mothers, younger men as brothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Now, that's one verse ripped out of a chapter, and so for it to make sense, let me give you a little bit of background of what surrounds it. If you were here last week, you heard Pastor Binu preach on the passage right before this verse. He preached 1 Timothy 4, verses 11 through 16, and in that passage, you heard what you've been hearing throughout this whole letter, that the Apostle Paul, the older, wise, seasoned pastor, was writing to Timothy, the young novice, about this unhealthy church where he was pastoring, and he was telling them he needed to command and charge and rebuke and urge and used all these verbs about what Timothy needed to do to make this, again, a healthy church. And so as you heard that, you heard young Timothy hearing, okay, I've got to get in there, I've got to command, I've got to rebuke, I've got to charge, I've got to urge these things. And we said last week, on top of that, in the section right before these verses we read today, was this command also, don't let anyone despise you for your youth. So you put all that together and you know that young Timothy is sort of working up the courage, mustering up the nerve to go into the church 
and command and rebuke and urge and teach these things to older folks while all the while making sure that no one despises him for his youth. And so you can picture him sort of pacing around in his room, getting ready, rehearsing what he needs to say. He's going to throw open the church doors and let him have it. And just before he does, just before fiery young Timothy is about to go into the church and just wreak havoc everywhere, Paul cautions him and gives him these important words he needs to hear. Timothy, as you're getting ready to do that, don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. The younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. The point is, Timothy, you need to remember that the gospel, if it's real, is going to show up in real life in how we really relate to one another in the church. If the gospel is real, then the gospel has said that we have genuinely, really become family. I want you to hear that again, because that's one of those Christian lines you'll just let fly over you. The gospel is saying, if you belong to Seven Mile Road Church, we are really family. Not abstractly heady sort of mental doctrines up here, really family. The gospel, now I've been throwing around that term, and if you're new here, I'm using a phrase you might not know what it means. The gospel is simply the real, not abstract, real, tangible, concrete good news that God so loved the world and us and you that he sent his son, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, to live this perfect life and die a sacrificial death for your sin, the things you had done that separated you from God, and through his death, you have been reconciled, really, genuinely, completely reconciled to God. You've been brought near, you've been accepted, you've been welcomed. That's good news, real good news. And the gospel says, in reconciling us to God, we've also, don't miss this, been reconciled to all the other people that have been reconciled to God. That through his death, he not only reconciled us to himself, but he reconciled us to all the other people that he reconciled to himself. You could say it like this. If you were adopted into the family of Mr. and Mrs. Smith, you know what you become? You become a Smith. Not abstractly, not theoretically, you really become a Smith. You really get the last name of Smith. And you really have now become a child. Mr. Smith is now really your dad, and you are really Mr. Smith's son. And you know what else happens really? All of Mr. Smith's other children are now really your siblings. You don't have any kind of relationship with Mr. Smith without his relationship with his other children. Because when you became a son, you also immediately, irreversibly, undeniably also became a sibling. You were brought into a family. And the gospel says that same thing, that when God reconciled you to himself, he also immediately reconciled you to one another. And if this is not real, then this is not real. But if this is real, then this is real. Right? Did you get all that from the hand gestures? That was supposed to communicate a lot. Right? If this is not real, then this isn't real either. Because if you do not have relationships with the family, it's a good sign you don't have a relationship with dad. 
There is no relationship with dad that doesn't also have a relationship with dad's kids. So the gospel is really the real, tangible, concrete news that we have become family. And Timothy needs to remember that as he goes in to relate with the church. If the gospel's real, it's going to show up in how we really relate to one another. So Paul says, Timothy, when you go in there and you talk to the older gray-haired men of the church, don't rip into them for their sins. Don't rebuke them. But do what? Treat them like dad, because that's what they are. If this is family and that's who we are, then the older men in the church are dad. You're not looking to lecture dad. You're not looking to rebuke dad. You're looking to learn from dad. And if ever the need comes for Timothy, and it has, for him to correct these older men, he needs to do it with the same kinds of knots you would have in your stomach if you had to have a hard conversation with your dad. Does that make sense? In the church, you're not ready to just rip into the older men. The same kind of knots you'd have in your own stomach if you had to have a hard conversation with your father, that should be the same kind of caution and concern in the pit of your stomach as you talk to the older men in the church. Because the way you speak to them is the way you would speak to dad. You would have great care. You'd be careful in the words that you'd say and the tone in which you'd say it. You'd be careful about every word that comes from your mouth because this is dad. And so it is with the older men in the church. Likewise, he says, and so treat the older women in the church like mom. How do you treat mom? You honor mom. You hold in high regard mom. You you respect mom. You revere mom. You cherish mom. You love mom. So likewise, the older women in our church are to be treated as mom. This is why every year, even if we don't remember any of your birthdays, every year we sing to Laura and Betty. And we will always do that. And we will never sing to any of you, right? We do that as a simple, minuscule gesture of honoring mom. Listen, Laura and Betty are not just attenders at Seven Mile Road with you. That's mom. And I'll let the Holy Spirit reveal to you what that would really look like, not abstract heady. If that's mom, then what is real gospel lived out among us as family going to look like? And the Holy Spirit will show you many ways in which these things can go beyond abstract things to real. We're family. Likewise, the scripture says in this passage, treat the younger men in the church like brothers. Like brothers. How do you treat brothers? If you have younger brothers, you beat them up. You, you let them tag along. You give them a hard time, but all the while you're wishing good for them. You train them up. You disciple them without even using phrases like, I'm going to disciple you, right? You, you let them watch your life, and you give them and show them the ropes, and you do everything that they need. I can tell you one of the most blessed things, one of the gifts of God in my life were godly older men that got involved with my life throughout different phases of my life to steer me away from all the foolishness and folly that my heart was so prone to. When I was a boy, God gave Jim, Jim and Lena, who's in Mumbai now, my older cousin, a few years older than me. I mean, from the moment I could dribble a basketball, I was on the court every day with him hanging out with guys much older than myself. I was in middle school hanging out with him and his college friends. 
And always this tag along, always around older people. But Jim loved the Lord, and it had a deep and profound impact on me. When I got to Boston, I was in seminary, newly married, and God gave me an older brother, 10 years older than me, named Matt Cruz, that deeply shaped who I became and who I was. I was newly married. I had no idea what I was doing. And yet, this brother in my life showed me the ropes of what it meant to love the Lord and love my wife and be a Christian and be a man. So much of that was shaped as older brothers get involved in the lives of younger brothers. That is earnestly, hear me, my hope for the younger men at Seven Mile Road Church. My deep hope, and hear me, how are we doing in relating to our younger men? If you're an older man here, and, and I've got to qualify that, Seven Mile Road is so young that if you're post 30, you're older, okay? So the older 30-year-olds and above here, how are we doing in relating to our younger brothers? That's an important question. Are we praying that God would bring a flood of young, single men to our church? And when they arrive at our church, how are we doing at relating to them as brothers? Some years back, I wrote an open letter to the men at Seven Mile Road, again, the older class. Right? Let, me, let me read you a bit of what I wrote openly to them because it's still very much my heart for the younger men of this church. I wrote to the older men of the church saying, Brothers, we have a bunch of young men at our church. That is a gift from God. As I see it, they will walk down one of two paths. Either they will give themselves to boyishness, childishness, and irresponsibility, or they will become godly men. Either they will become, like all the other 20-year-olds in our culture, addicted to porn, lazy, irresponsible, immature, putzing around in school, not getting a job, wasting money, stay, saying stupid things like, I want to find myself and travel first, sleep around, jump from girl to girl, delay marriage, and push off adulthood till their mid-30s. A better vision and a hope that we ought to have for our younger men is that they would be godly men, that they would be courageous and strong and responsible, that they would love God, know his word, and serve his church, that they would fight sin, overcome the evil one, and strive for purity, that they would work hard, finish school, get a job, save money, date a girl, garter purity, get married, become dads and leaders, that they will bear responsibility for their homes and lead their wives and their children to Jesus and be able to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And then I wrote to the brothers saying, well, I think God has put us in a unique position to push our young men to this better vision and better path. Many of us know the benefit of having someone godly in our lives to help shape us as young adults. Others of us wish that we had someone speaking God's truth into our lives and think of all the sin and immaturity that we might have avoided if we had good leaders back then. Imagine how you would have benefited if someone talked to you about fighting lust and porn when you were 16 or 18 or 20 or taught you about marriage at 22 or whatever it may be. I want to encourage you to get involved in the lives of the young men in our church. Disciple them, pray for them, encourage them, lead them, speak God's truth to them. Obviously, all of this humbles us to consider the kind of men we are first that we might call others to imitate us. Let us then look to Jesus, the perfect man, look to the cross, and be the men that God wants us to be so that we can lead other men to do the same. You want a ministry at Seven Mile Road Church? You're looking for a ministry? 
disciple young men. Treat them as younger brothers. Show them the ropes. Where else in the world are they going to hear a godly vision for all that they will need? If the church will not do it, where should they go? Where are they going to go to learn what it looks like to be a good student or how to get a good job or how to be a good employee at that good job or how to save money for a home and for a marriage and for a wife or how to be a godly husband or a good dad? Where are we going to send them to get all that if we don't do it? And so us older men should ask and invite the Holy Spirit to, to search how we've been doing at that. We ought to train and relate to our younger men as brothers, hoping and pushing for the best in them. Because we're family, not abstractly family, not theoretically family, in real life, tangible, gospel-lived-out ways. He goes on to say, and treat the younger women like sisters. And he adds the phrase, with all purity. Right? So the younger women at the church... How are we to relate to them like sisters? Like a good older brother watches his sister, so we're to relate to all of them. I'm going to embarrass Robin for a second because I haven't asked his permission. But as I read this passage, I couldn't stop thinking about Robin because I get a sense of just being around Robin and Rebecca that Rebecca is the most treasured, loved, protected, guarded sister in the world. I would hate to be the punk that has to go through Robin to try and talk to Rebecca. Right, But we ought to be a church filled with godly brothers who relate to the younger women in the church like sisters. He adds the phrase, with all purity, all purity, because young Pastor Timothy is going to relate to women his age and younger, and how is he going to relate to them? With purity, as sisters. There's no room for compromise here or taking advantage here. He's going to guard these younger women in the church like an older brother would watch over his sister. That's how you are to relate to. So every man at Seven Mile Road has a relationship with the other women in the church like family. The older women, like moms. And a woman who's his peer or younger, like a sister that he's going to relate to with all purity. Here's the point. If the gospel's real and not just abstract, but lived out, it's got to be lived out in real life, flesh and blood ways, because Christianity is always incredibly practical. And so the question is, how are we doing it, relating to one another as family? Because that's what we are. Fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. That's who we are. So ask yourself, if you're a regular attender at Seven Mile Road, If you're a visitor, we're so glad you're here. If you're a regular attender at Seven Mile Road, what metaphor describes the kind of relationship you have with this church? Not theoretically, functionally, really. Not abstractly, what kind of metaphor describes the relationship you have here? Are you sort of like a consumer, really? Where this is a religious place that We were a vendor of religious goods and services, and so you come to consume what you need, and then you leave. Like you come in and out of a restaurant to get what you need to enjoy a good meal or critique that it wasn't, but then you leave. You have no dishes to clean, no tables to set up because you're a consumer or a spectator. You, You show up to watch a game or to 
to see a movie or to check out a play or to see a musical, what do you do? You spectate. You get to come to an event, you get to watch the show, and you get to go home. And maybe your Sunday offering is your price of admission. God is inviting you to much more than that. God's saying, family, that the people around you literally sitting next to you is mom or dad or brother or sister, and not theoretically, but really. Because there's no relationship here if there's no relationship here. And if there's a relationship here, there's a relationship here. Paul wants to make sure this gospel is lived out in real, practical, tangible ways. But his concern is not just with how we relate to one another in the church. He also has a great concern with how we relate to those outside the church and the impact that our lives have on the gospel there. And so skip down for a second with me to chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Let me read it again so it's fresh to you. It says, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they are to serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So here's why we're jumping down a whole chapter. Paul, in this letter, is going to talk about a bunch of relationships that the gospel affects. In 5 verse 1 and 2, we've already talked about the relationships between us and the church, family, mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, because of the gospel. If you keep reading in chapter 5, you hear about the relationships between elderly parents and their children, something we talked about a few weeks ago here. If you keep reading in chapter 5, you talk about the relationship between elders and leaders or pastors and the people, something we'll talk about next week. But in chapter 6, he addresses another group of relationships, and he talks about slaves and their masters. Now, the most comparable application to us would be employers and their employees. Now, I don't want to jump too far ahead because though that might be a fitting comparison for us to apply, the truth is we would have a hard time just getting past this use of the word slaves. Does that make sense? You read 6, 1, and 2, and whatever it applies to us, the immediate thing we would get hung up on is this passage is about slaves and masters. Why isn't the only thing that's being said being stop the slavery? Why is Paul even giving instructions about slaves and masters? So we would read this and we would have a hard time even getting past the word slavery because, and we can't help it, we can't help but hear that word and hear it in our own context. So we're 2013. We come in America. We've heard of our history. And so when we think of slavery, we can't help but think of what happened centuries ago horrifically in our country. Now, slavery is never ideal in any part, in any place of the world. But what we do need to do is not import into 1 Timothy 6 our own context. We can't read back 2,000 years of history and interpret it that way. We've got to understand the context that Paul was speaking about. And what I want you to simply hear is that the slavery or servitude that Paul's talking about here is not the same thing that you and I think of. It wasn't ideal by any means, but it's certainly not the same thing we would think of. For example, the servitude that Paul's talking about, he calls them bond servants, was not racially based this horrific sin in our country, it wasn't racially based then. It was economically based, and in fact, often, you sold yourself into slavery. 
In 1 Timothy 1, we've already heard what Paul thinks about slavery and slave traders. He cites human trafficking and enslavers as this horrific abuse of God's law. But here, he's talking into a system where often you sold yourself into servitude. So for example, if you were in debt and you couldn't pay off your debt, there was no MasterCard or Visa to help you. So what you did was you put yourself into servitude until you could work off your debt. And that's sort of the system that was going on here. Many people were a part of that system. In some ways, it upheld the economy. At that time, there were some 60 million people in the Roman Empire that were servants or slaves. The entire economy was run by that sort of indentured servitude. Also, what you'll find there is that the serving was not always physical. It wasn't on a plantation or in a field or in a home like we tend to think of in our own context or history. Often these slaves or servants were trained folks, physicians, lawyers, merchants, tutors, teachers. But because of economic hard times, they would find themselves in service to another person. In fact, there are even occasions where serving one another, masters and slaves, had a good relationship with each other. For example, if there's a story in the Gospels of Jesus healing a centurion man's servant or slave. If you've read through the Gospels, you'll remember there's this Roman soldier that comes to Jesus and he begs Jesus, heal my slave that's back home. In fact, if you read it, he adds something like, because he's very dear to me. And in fact, if you compare how this man pleads, it's almost the way that fathers and mothers pled with Jesus for the saving or healing of their own children. This Roman centurion had this relationship with his servant or slave like he was pleading for his own son. The Old Testament has laws where a servant would have such a great relationship with his household that there was this whole ceremony, this law given about how a servant, when he was set free, would go to a certain place of the city pierce his ear and say, I do not want to go free. I want to be my master's servant for life. So all I'm trying to get you to see is the vision of slavery that Paul is addressing here, or servitude, though still not ideal, and though the New Testament will write to undo it, is different than what you and I think. So for us, this passage and context is so far removed, we have trouble figuring out how it applies. And I want to simply suggest that perhaps the closest application for us is our relationships with our own masters or the folks that we're employed under and work for. And if you get it that way, then what you're beginning to see is that what Paul's saying is the gospel is lived out in real ways, not just here in how we relate to one another as one big happy family, But the gospel is also concerned with how you live out there with unbelievers at places like work. Hear it. What he's insisting on you is, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Pause there for a second. All honor. Now, is that a word that would describe your attitude towards your place of employment or the place or the people that employ you. He uses the word all honor. In fact, that word shows up a bunch of times in chapter 5 and 6. In 5 verses 1 and 2, we saw the honor required to older men and women. As you keep reading, that word honor will show up in how we're supposed to relate with godly old widows and sweet old ladies. 
That word shows up in how Christians are to relate to godly pastors. They're to honor them. And so put that together and hear that what God expects for you who are believers in how you relate to your non-Christian boss is to have the same kind of honor that you would have in the church for one another or the same kind of honor that you would have for godly old widows or the same kind of honor you would have for your pastor is the kind of honor God is calling you to have in your workplace, even to your employer. It doesn't matter if you work at Dunder Mifflin and Dwight Schrute is your boss. Paul is saying, hold in high honor those who you labor under. Now, maybe you go, Ajay, you don't know who my boss is. You don't know where I work. There's no way to honor that person. Is your circumstance really harder than the situation Paul's writing to? Don't forget who he's writing to. He's writing to New Testament Christian slaves. He's writing to slaves who have ungodly masters and saying, you are to honor them. So our circumstance certainly can't be harder or worse off than that. And the point is, what a great opportunity for the gospel to be really lived out in that precise setting. Because if the gospel is real, it's going to show up in real life. And what an environment and opportunity for the gospel to really be lived out. The point is, as you live a life that is commendable, exemplary, even among non-Christians, even at work, you do something great for the gospel. If you're asking, why should I honor the folks at work, why should I live that way? Hear it again. Let them live and treat their masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Here's the point. The point is, your life is going to communicate something at work. And if you're a punk employee and everyone knows that you're a Christian, nothing about your life is going to make Christianity attractive. But if the gospel is lived out in real-life flesh-and-blood ways, when they find out you're a Christian, your employment has already earned you a platform and a hearing. They may not know Christ, but they know you. And if they love you, then they may at least give Christ a hearing. But if you bring a bad name as an employee, then this text is saying you will cause the gospel and God himself to be reviled. Here's the point. One preacher said it like this. There was a federal law passed some years ago that that you couldn't display religious things as paraphernalia all over your workplace. That you couldn't hang up your Bible calendar, you know, at your cubicle and so on. And Christians began to panic at just the thought of that. And one preacher says, Paul's word to us is, listen, Jesus' plan for how your workplace would know the gospel was never more Jesus fishes or 15 WWJD bracelets. Jesus' plan has always been your life. And your life is either going to make the gospel attractive or ugly. You want a ministry? You're at one Monday through Friday. You're at one Monday through Friday, and every day of the week, you're going to either make the gospel look beautiful or ugly. It's not by being perfect. But can they see in you one who strives through being a good employee after Jesus? Here's the point. 
The point is, whether we're talking about life here on Sunday or life outside of here Monday through Friday, if the gospel's real, it's going to show up in real life, in how we relate to one another as believers, in how we relate to the world, even among unbelievers, so that through it all, God and his gospel might look beautiful. You may not be in the perfect circumstance. Last week, a brother here at Seven Mile Road was lamenting to me about his work, about the people that he worked with and the environment that he was in. It was just the most negative, worst place. He was dying to get another job. And someone else at Seven Mile Road told him, maybe God has you in such a dark place to be a light. Now, that's not a throwaway Christian line. That's actually really sound. God had put these slaves strategically under their masters so that through their life and service, the gospel might look great. God has you exactly where he has you, Monday through Friday, not by accident, but that through your life, you might make the gospel look great. That's the point. You're in full-time ministry. Every one of you, whether your check comes from Seven Mile Road or comes from wherever it comes from, you're in full-time ministry, Monday through Friday, to make the gospel look great. So may the gospel of Jesus impact the way that we treat one another here and may how we treat one another out there impact how they see the gospel. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for this time together. I thank you dearly for these brothers and sisters. And how wonderful to know that is not just an empty phrase. We have one Father, and all of us find ourselves brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, one family under you. Like every family, there's sin here, there's need for grace here, there's misunderstandings here, but like a healthy family, and that's what we're trying to be, a healthy church, bring us back through Jesus to one another, that we might have real relationships with each other, And that the real gospel will be lived out in real ways here and lived out also in real ways Monday through Friday at work so that through our lives and service we might testify loudly to the beauty of God and his gospel. Apply, O Lord, your word in specific ways and give us application this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.